This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, February 28, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Why do so many police officers seem to escape prosecution or sometimes even charges when they're accused of, and by all rights, have committed acts that would send anyone else to prison? It's called qualified immunity, and it protects bad cops from the costs of their misconduct. So what is qualified immunity, and why do we have it? Clark Neely and Jay Schweikert of the Cato Institute explain. When it comes to liability for the actions that we take, how do you and I differ from cops? Uh, we're held to a much higher standard than police are. Uh, doctors are held to a higher standard. Uh, architects, pretty much everybody you could name except prosecutors, are held to a higher standard uh, than police officers when it comes to liability for your own misconduct that results in an injury to somebody else. The courts have gone out of their way to create a whole web of special exceptions and doctrines that all add up to a policy of what amounts to near zero accountability for law enforcement. Well, no, I mean, I think no, I mean, I think that that's that's put exactly correctly. I mean, I think to go slightly more specifically, it's uh, one of one sort of common maxim and. Uh, in the law is that uh, ignorance of the law is no defense. Um, ordinary citizens are given really the extraordinary and probably literally impossible burden of trying to comply with thousands or if you include regulatory crimes, hundreds of thousands of laws that no one would, you know, could ever read all of them um, or would, you know, often not even suspect were uh, laws in the first place if you didn't uh, accidentally run into them, and the courts don't permit that as an excuse. And yet that is the exact excuse they give uh, police officers and indeed all public officials under the qualified immunity doctrine, that unless, you know, you had, unless you were essentially uh, intending to violate the law or uh, completely incompetent, uh, you're not going to be held liable if the law wasn't clearly established enough. And that's not hyperbole, by the way. That's actually a Supreme Court case that says that this qualified immunity doctrine um, is meant to protect, quote, all but the plainly incompetent or those who deliberately violate the law. Let me just ask you what you think about whether you'd wish to be treated in a hospital that held its doctors to that incredibly low standard. I, I suspect that most people would run, not walk away from that hospital. So to understand the qualified immunity more clearly, um, I guess what is the case that is presented on behalf of its legitimacy? What's, what's the best argument you can make on behalf of it? Sure. So just to, to back up and give a little explanation here, as a doctrinal matter, qualified immunity is a gloss on uh, Section 1983, which is our main civil rights statute. And this civil rights statute says in so many words, any state actor who violates your constitutional rights shall be liable to the party injured. Um, read straightforwardly doesn't allow any kind of immunity. The qualified immunity is a doctrine that the court has essentially read into this statute to say, even if a public official acts unlawfully, they won't be held liable unless they violated clearly established law. Now, the main uh, case that the Supreme Court has made to, to defend this doctrine is the idea that it is purportedly uh, grounded in historical common law immunities that existed at the time of 1871. Um, this, when the this, civil rights law was enacted. Yes, I'm sorry. When, when, this, when this civil rights law was originally enacted, uh, the court has... Uh, said that, well, e even though this, this text is straightforward, we're not going to read it to displace pre-existing immunities that existed at common law. 
Um, and in certain respects, uh, that's correct. Um, there were pretty well-established immunities, say, for uh, state legislators or for judges acting in their official capacity. Uh, there were certain limited uh, defenses to particular torts. So, for instance, in the case of a false arrest, a police officer, um, if accused of the tort of false arrest, would have a defense of good faith and probable cause. That is, if they were acting in good faith, there was no liability. Um, the court started from that premise, which is reasonable enough, but expanded it far beyond what the history would justify. So now the court is the, the doctrine as it exists today is an across-the-board defense for all public officials of any sort um, that doesn't turn on their subjective good faith, but turns on this clearly established law standard, which is nearly impossible to meet and appears nowhere in the history. And let me just try to bring that down to earth a little bit with a with a practical illustration. What we're talking about here is essentially when let's when a police officer violates your constitutional rights, federal law, section nineteen eighty three says you're entitled to a remedy. You're entitled to hold that person liable. What the Supreme Court has done is said, well, we're going to essentially invent this doctrine of qualified immunity out of whole cloth. And in, unless the right was clearly established, then you don't get any recovery. And what they mean by that is you have to be able to find a case directly on point in the relevant jurisdiction in order to show that the particular violation was one of clearly established law. Let me give you an illustration. There was a very tragic situation in Texas a couple of years ago where um, a, a man stopped taking his medication. He had some mental health problems. He went over to a relative's house and he armed himself and um, another relative called the police and they showed up with a SWAT team as they so often do. And it happened that his daughter was um, was in the house with him and, and she warned the police, don't call him on the phone to talk to him. You're just going to agitate him. So that's exactly what they did. It did agitate him. Um, he went to the door, front door of the house with his daughter and um, a few seconds later was shot dead by uh, one of the SWAT team members. Uh, so this daughter standing next to her daughter, who, uh, or this daughter standing next to her father, who's lying on the ground dead after being shot by a member of the SWAT team. One of them comes in and scoops her up like a sack of potatoes, throws her over a fence on the property into the waiting hands of another police officer, who takes her into custody. Uh, and puts her in a police car and she's not free to go. She hasn't committed any crime. They don't even allege that she's committed any crime. They just want to essentially hold her for questioning uh, because, you know, she was a witness to this police shooting. Um, after another sort of series of events we don't need to get into, she ended up suing the police officers for violating her Fourth Amendment right to be free from unreasonable seizures. They had no basis uh, to, to, to grab her and to take her into custody. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals that covers the state of Texas said, in essence, yes, your constitutional rights were violated because you're right. They didn't have any uh, basis to seize you. But there's no case on point where a police officer, after his teammate shot somebody's relative dead, grabbed one of the family members who saw it happen, threw him over a fence like a sack of potatoes and took him into custody. And because that particular case has never been decided before, that police officer did not have clear notice that the conduct was proscribed and you don't get to sue him. It, it's hard to imagine um, a, a legal rule that is more antithetical to and more contrary to the actual text of the statute that it purports to be interpreted. But that's where we've gotten to from this uh, with this judge-made uh, uh, qualified immunity doctrine that requires this very hyper-technical kind of search through prior case law to find a, a prior case directly on point or else you won't be able to meet the clearly established requirement. 
So help me understand this. Is it that uh, the, the how the legal standard has changed here? Is it now a presumption of good faith, or is good faith simply not a part of how courts deal with this issue? Uh, it's the latter. Good good faith isn't it, it, it isn't really the framework that the courts look at anymore. Um, and in fact, it it specifically is irrelevant in the sense that if an officer was acting with bad faith, if you have smoking gun. You know, caught them on caught them on uh, you know recording, uh, expressing bad faith uh, towards some particular suspect. So long as their behavior didn't violate clearly established law, uh, they're still not going to be liable. Um, the, the the court has defended this as a as a purportedly objective standard that doesn't turn on the subjective good faith of the individual officer. I think that's problematic for two reasons. One, it's not objective because this is a sort of infinitely malleable standard uh, because how you define the level of generality for established law is is always going to be an open question. Um, but it's also problematic because it gets even further away from the history that this doctrine is supposed to be based on. Um, it, it would be one thing if courts were looking at this uh, in a kind of case-by-case specific way where if you're bringing a tort and that tort at common law had good faith as an element, you know, the officer could assert it as a defense here. That that would have some historical grounding. But where we are is is just a complete policy invention. Um, the courts have essentially said this is what we think would be a good uh, policy for uh, liability for government officials. And even though the statute and history are to the contrary, that's what we're going to require plaintiffs to meet. And how broad is qualified immunity? Because I'm thinking of people who have a public responsibility. They they, they deal with members of the public on a regular basis. My specific uh, thought is of child protective services uh, and people like that. So how broad does how how far does it extend? It it, it, it's, it's, it applies to anyone that you could sue under the statute. So, for, so, so the the civil rights statute covers anyone acting under color of state law, which basically means anyone who could be fairly understood as acting with the state's authority. Um, anyone who comes within that range uh, ha- at least has qualified immunity. Certain officials uh, actually even go beyond that. For instance, prosecutors uh, have absolute immunity. Um, so, you know, no matter what, no matter what kind of case you find, you're not going to be able to sue them. But qualified immunity is the default baseline that every single public official gets. And again, we can we can talk about a real case. Uh, Caleb, you mentioned uh, uh, Child Protective Services. There's actually a recent case out of the Ninth Circuit in California where uh, some parents had taken some pictures, uh, some photographs of their children during bath time. Um, and I didn't know people still use cameras with film, but I guess they do because they sent the film out to be developed and an employee at the, you know, the Walgreens or wherever it was, uh, notified Child Protective Services that there were some, uh, you know, dubious pictures that they had just developed. The most any of these pictures apparently showed was, um, you know, an uncovered buttock. There weren't, there wasn't anything more intimate than that. But on that basis, um, not only the police, but Child Protective Services showed up at these parents' house and removed the children from uh, from the home, took them out of the par- away from the parents, and it all got sorted out. And the children were eventually returned, and the parents sued. 
And not only the trial court judge, but one of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals judges held that that child protective services worker should have been entitled to qualified immunity on the grounds that there wasn't a case directly on point and therefore what that person, the way that person violated those parents' constitutional rights was not, quote unquote, clearly established. Now, fortunately, two of the Ninth Circuit judges went the other way and said, no, that qualified immunity uh, defense does not apply in this case, but it was as close as can be. And so you're right, yes, it does. Qualified immunity does apply to other government officials besides police officers. And when it applies to any government official, it's extraordinary how far backwards many judges will bend over to find a way to uh, absolve the government official of responsibility. And it's become a real problem. It it, it almost seems like the um, criminal justice equivalent of a rational basis test. That is, we can imagine... We can, or I should say, we can imagine the specific set of circumstances here and how it might differ somewhat from a previous case that what may have been substantially very similar. And so because it doesn't really match that those facts closely enough, we have to extend this immunity. Yeah, I, I think that that's I think that's a good comparison. Um, one of the one of the ways that the court has framed this is to ask whether, uh, the existing case law places the question beyond all debate. Uh, and if you ask, of course, if you ask any lawyer, no questions beyond all debate. You can always argue cases. Um, and I think one of the ways you see this reflect, reflected is how quickly civil rights cases get thrown out extremely early in the litigation before someone has even had their day in court. So what will happen is uh, a civil rights plaintiff will file a complaint uh, alleging unlawful behavior by a government official. Um, before there's any even even evidence taken in the case, uh, the the defendants might raise a qualified immunity defense and say that you know on these facts, um, you know we should be entitled to qualified immunity. What the courts are supposed to do when reviewing uh, a, a motion to dismiss in that in that posture is to assume that all of the facts are true, that whatever the plaintiff is alleged, they can prove, and that and that if they have evidence, they'll be able to argue it to a jury. Uh, what you often see happening is the court's sort of slipping on this a bit and assuming uh, more in the defendant's favor, more in the government's favor here uh, than is necessarily the case. Um, it could be, uh, you know, it could be the case that a jury fi- found that what the uh, police officer did here was objectively unreasonable. Um, you know, maybe they would go that way, maybe not. That's the reason we have trials is to let juries decide those kinds of complicated questions. But a, a lot of times you see judges uh falling down on their responsibility to interpret the complaint in the way that's most favorable to the plaintiff to essentially help the government uh, get out of the case as soon as they can and will kind of shade the facts in a light that would permit qualified immunity, even if the plaintiff might have been able to convince a jury otherwise. So how important is the relationship between cops and prosecutors here then? Well, it's a real problem uh, because they work together you know, on an ongoing basis. And we've seen time and time again that prosecutors tend to be extremely reluctant to bring charges against police officers, I think in part because they work together and prosecutors depend on police officers to provide testimony in their cases, to investigate crimes that can then be, uh, you know, turned over into indictments, et cetera. So they work very closely together and, and have a, you know, mutually dependent relationship. That's point one. Um, the other point is that even when uh, police officers are prosecuted, 
we've seen multiple times where prosecutors will go to a grand jury and normally what a prosecutor does is present only the evidence that is favorable to the prosecution in a grand jury proceeding, the, the point of which is not to try to obtain a conviction but simply to, uh, to essentially ask the grand jury whether there is probable cause to proceed with the prosecution and indict the, the defendant. Um, so prosecutors are allowed to just present their strongest case. They don't have to present any, uh, you know, exculpatory evidence or, or contrary witnesses. And that's normally what they do. And, and that's one of the reasons why we have this expression that any competent profess, uh, prosecutor could indict a ham sandwich. What we've seen when it's a police officer who's the defendant, and we saw this uh, most vividly in the, the shooting of Michael Brown um, in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, the, uh, instead of presenting just the pro-prosecution side of the case uh, during the grand jury proceeding, the prosecutor actually went ahead and presented both sides. You know, I've got this evidence that, you know, points one way, but then, you know, there's all this other evidence that might exonerate the police officer. And guess what? He was not indicted. Um, you, I can't think of a single time when I've seen a prosecutor uh, do that for a regular citizen, and uh, you know, anecdotally, it seems that they do it uh, consistently for police officers. So um, it, it can hardly be an accident that it happens that way, and it seems to me quite likely that that a big part of the reason why it happens is because they work together, and that matters a lot because it means that um, criminal prosecution is not going to be an effective means of holding police officers accountable. I mean, you know, when a police officer, uh, you know, beats somebody up who's already in handcuffs. That is both a crime and a tort. In other words, it is a constitutional violation that that, um, the the Civil Rights Act was designed to remedy so you can sue the police officer. But it's also something for which the police officer should, at least in theory, go to prison because it's an assault. Uh, And the point that we're making here is because police police and prosecutors work together so closely, it is proven that the criminal prosecution route is not a reliable means of holding police officers who engage in this kind of horrible misconduct that is both criminal and tortious. Uh, the criminal route has not been effective in holding them accountable. And that's exactly why qualified immunity is such a problem, because not only does it uh, deny justice to individual claimants whose rights have been violated, I mean, that's important for its own sake, but at a larger structural level, it is, for the very reasons that Clark just said, it's crippling our best tool of actually creating accountability for law enforcement, which is civil liability. That's the best. That's the best shot. That's the best tool we have in our toolbox here. Um, and qualified immunity makes that extremely difficult to get. How do we get to that point? Uh, how do we open up civil liability? What are the necessary uh, and sufficient conditions for uh, making that the law? Well, I mean, the starting place is to get rid of qualified immunity. Uh, right, I, but but that seems right. that's that's a that's a big big lift. And uh, what's step one and step two there? So I, I think the the step one, uh, if, you know, we're looking at this from the sort of legal judicial side. Step one is um, increasing, getting the courts to recognize how uh, historically unjustified this doctrine is. Um, and this, this process has actually already started. Uh, Justice Thomas, actually, in, in a recent uh, con- uh, uh, concurrence in a two- 2017 case, Ziglar v. Abbasi, has, has a whole separate opinion basically just saying, uh, I'm concurring in the result because the court correctly applies our precedent, but uh, I'm skeptical about the justifications for qualified immunity. It seems like we've gone far beyond the historical baseline. Uh, this doesn't seem to be compelled by the text of the statute or the history. Um, I think the... You know, the first step, at the very least, is to stop, is to encourage the courts to not expand this any further. Uh, in the last several decades, the Supreme Court has been extremely aggressive 
uh, in making qualified immunity a stricter and stricter standard. Out of the last 30 cases, qualified immunity cases, the court has uh, has, has heard, um, in only uh, in 28 out of, or I think there are only three of those 30 cases where the court uh, denied qualified immunity, i.e. where they said the defendant actually should be liable. In the rest, they um, they granted qualified immunity to to the defendant. So they so you know they've been pushing the doctrine further and further. I think step one at the very least is to not go any further than we are now and to say this far but no further, and then hopefully to encourage the court to start cutting back and reconsidering and interpreting uh, Section 1983 according to its text and according to the common law history against which it was passed. I don't think that's that aggressive of an ask. I think that, uh, you know, frankly, I think there are a number of members, number of uh, members of the court who I think would be receptive to that. Caleb, I want to add one other thing, which is that it's extremely important to educate people about the, 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 the role that qualified immunity plays as the cornerstone of what amounts to a near-zero accountability policy for law enforcement that has been largely but not exclusively created by the judiciary. And what I mean by that is this. If you want to see the face of near-zero accountability for police officers, of which qualified immunity, again, is the cornerstone, you have no further to look than uh, uh, Broward County Sheriff Scott Israel, who's been on TV and on social media uh, the last few days uh, as, as, you know, basically one of the most irresponsible people in the country. This is a man uh, whose officers missed repeated opportunities to stop the tragic uh, shooting uh, in Parkland, Florida, uh, whose uh, one or more of his officers cowered outside the building. Uh, while the shooting was going on, they were armed, they were present, they had the ability to go in and engage the shooter, and they failed to do so. And this man disclaims responsibility for all of that. Um, and, and in a way that seems, you know, quite outraged that anybody would even suggest that he should be responsible, that is the face of near-zero accountability for law enforcement. And again, the courts have been largely responsible for creating that policy by inventing qualified immunity out of whole cloth, by inventing absolute prosecutorial immunity out of whole cloth by eliminating the doctrine of respondeat superior. That's the doctrine that says that an employer should be responsible for the misconduct of its employees. The Supreme Court eliminated that doctrine when it comes to law enforcement. There's also a judge-made doctrine that says that police officers have no legal duty to protect you. And when they negligently fail to do so, as they have in the past and as they uh, quite clearly did in Parkland, Florida, and if they get sued for that, they routinely assert this judge-made rule that says that police officers have no legal duty to defend us from harm. So what we're looking here is, at here is an entire kind of palette uh, of non-responsibility, much of it created by the courts that, again, has created a policy that can best be described as near zero accountability for law enforcement. And we're seeing the living personification of that policy in the face of Scott Israel down in Florida. And it is, a, it is both a tragedy and an outrage. Jay Schweikert is a policy analyst and Clark Neely is vice president for criminal justice at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.